Vera Moynes, you are an archivist and you are also the editor of the Jesuit Irish Mission, a calendar of correspondence between 1566 and 1752, and also Irish Jesuit Annual Letters between 1604 and 1615. Now, tell me about this project where you brought together these letters and the calendar. It was a commemorative project of the Irish province in 2014, isn't that right? Indeed it was. I was a member of a committee, uh, it was called the 1814 Committee because it, cel- it celebrated the bicentenary of the re-foundation, really we can say, of the Irish Jesuits in 2014. So Father Noel Barba was the chair of that committee and I was called in quite late as it is, or called in maybe I was asked in quite late. There were quite a few things being organised during that ensuing year. There was an exhibition of uh, Father Brown's photographs, there was a wonderful exhibition also organised, curated Uh, by Audrey Nichols in the National Gallery of Ireland, which was called Saints and Sensuality, based on the Irish Jesuits. And yeah, well, I was asked in because by recommendation from Brian McCorta, who's now the principal archivist at the Archivium Romanum Societatis Jesus, so the main Jesuit archives in Rome, um, it was his idea to publish the annuals, that is those annual letters from 1604 to 1615, the 25 that survive, and to calendar all the other records that went directly between Rome and Ireland. Um, so these belong to the Jesuits, they were 17th century. This was a project to commemorate the Jesuits had been suppressed for a number of years and then in 1814 they were allowed to, as you say, refound again. The letters, what is an annual letter just for people who might know what that was? Yeah, indeed. Um, and how would anybody know? I certainly didn't before I was uh, roped into this wonderful project. Um, so there are only 25 remaining and their annual letters are sort of a genre unto themselves. They were like annual reports written by Jesuits anywhere in the world, you know, Goa, Brazil, uh, Japan, you name it. They were meant to write them on an annual basis. They mightn't always have managed. And to report stuff back to Rome um, that was going to be shared among all Jesuits. So it was supposed by St. Ignatius and his wonderful secretary Juan de Polanco it was supposed to link people horizontally as well as um, hierarchically you know to up above so they were supposed to give what they called edifying stories you know and that put historians off for a long time but there's so much more than that they are reports they tell where Jesuits went in a given year where their residences their stable residences were what missions they undertook you know how they helped the Catholics on the ground and how they in many cases converted the heretics as they were um <laughs> all the time. I, I think the Jesuits still send, the provincials still send annual letters to the Father General in Rome. I believe so. I'm afraid I haven't looked at any of the modern specimens, but they're <laughs> and I don't think they're converting the heretics. I hope not anyway. <laughs> but so that was the letters that you were looked at. And then what about the calendar? Yeah, so the calendar includes those 25 letters, um, as well as 2,600 plus other documents that went, as I said, directly between Rome and the various houses in Ireland. So every Jesuit, depending on his his rank, we could say maybe, was supposed to write letters to their superiors. So the superior of the Irish mission was supposed to write letters regularly to Rome, that is to the superior general in the Curia in Rome. So those those documents are, for the most part, letters, but there's also 
reports, not just the annual letters, but other reports. And then there were these um, catalogues, as they were called, really lists of Irish Jesuits. And quite a few of those survive between really just for the 17th century um, and the very early 18th century. But they list Jesuits in the Irish mission in any particular year. And then the, the really detailed ones also break them down by residence. So that the residence is the word that they used for the, the houses that they, they lived in. So would these have been the houses in Ireland or Irish Jesuits all around the world? No, indeed. We're just looking at the Irish mission. And uh, yes, indeed. And the Irish were the Irish Jesuits were based in stable residences in Dublin to go around the coast and Dublin in New Ross in Wexford, in Clonmel. I'm sure I'm leaving something out here in Cork and in Waterford and in Galway City, but also in Limerick. Where they still, well, they're not longer in Cork, but they're in Limerick, certainly in Galway, and then they've gone up north as well. Mm. So this gives you a real insight you must have seen, and we're now going to get that insight in these books, into the early days, really, of the Irish Jesuits, because it's early enough, I mean, with the founding of the Jesuits by Ignatius. Give us examples of what you might have come across. You were in the archives in Rome, Mm -hmm. you were... Translating from what language? I was translating from Latin, but I also had 15 translators who essentially translated from Latin. And then there were two people who were asked to translate from Portuguese because one of these annual letters is in Portuguese. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. So some examples for people of what you what you got. Yeah, yeah. And these are highlights. Now, um, I, I have to say that the annual letters themselves, if you started reading them, you shouldn't expect too much. They're very repetitive and they, you know, they celebrate the achievements during the year. So they look like a list of things. But every now and then um, storytelling devices are deployed. So every now and then a story really shines out. And there are two that really come to mind here. But one is from 1605. And this is not from an annual letter. This is a letter sent normally by the Irish uh, superior in 1605 to Superior General Aquaviva. And he tells the story of this a man, a townsman. We don't know what town it is. They often leave out interesting details like that. So he's he's standing in the main square of a town. It could be Cashel or it could be Dublin because at the time the town criers read out a royal edict ordering priests to leave Ireland and ordering uh, the Catholic people, the lay people to attend Protestant church services. So the Jesuit who tells the story in this letter says the man was not bearing his head while the edict was proclaimed. He was seized by the guards therefore and when he was asked why he did not show respect to his sovereign he ex- replied and this is given as a I only came here to the market to buy myself three L's of cloth for making a tunic and not to hear the likes of this. <laughs> so he should have had his head covered. Was that it? Was that a rule? He, no, well, he should have actually bared his head. He should have, oh, taken, sorry, his he should have taken his cap off. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And the, the amazing thing is that with that reply, they let him off. You know, you'd expect them to put him in chains and throw him into some dungeon or other. But no. But the thing is, the subtext to all of these stories really is that Jesuits want to prove or want to show that the Irish Irish Catholics were constant to their faith, you know, and this this man really was no exception. So he stood up to authority. And three L's of cloth. What's an L? Did you find that out, Gosh, Vera? I think it's something like an arm's length, but I'm not yeah. sure what, whatever the arm's length was at the time. At the time. That's amazing. <laughs> he kept his cap on and they were annoyed. He was lucky they let him go, yes. wasn't he? Very lucky indeed, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, this letter was written in Italian. I'm not quite sure why the superior at the time, he must have spent time in, in Italy, but he wrote directly to Acquaviva, who was an Italian. And this man is just called a Vitorino, 
So I looked up and down, left and right, and I asked Italian friends of mine as well. And, you know, Vittoria is victory. So is it a little man who bears the victory with him or not? We don't really know. He might have coined a name from lovely. Any other things there? Yeah, this centers on, on a Jesuit who's probably my favorite. I know one shouldn't really make favorites, but um, he was a cork man called David Galway. And he went three times at least, he went on missions to the Scottish islands, the nearest Hebrides to us. And he also went to the peninsula of Kintyre. So in this year, 1619, they say, uh, he was given shelter by a very, very poor man when nobody else was bothering with him. But at the same time, the local Protestant minister and his illegitimate son, they love these details, were out hunting for the priest. So, you know, word had gone round. The priest, David Galway, he was he was doing great jobs. He was converting people and he was bringing people who were Catholics back to the fold and that, you know, they hadn't been able to practice. And of course, the sacraments hadn't been given to them for a long time. So anyway, the priest does get away unscathed. And later, that poor man tells everybody in the village and around that his hut and especially the corner where David Galway had slept was shining in a wonderful light for days afterwards. (laughs) It's lovely the way the folklore and that imagination, that mystical imagination that sets in. So he escaped and the shine of his energy was there. Amazing. It might be still there now. Yeah. (laughs) And you said something interesting there, Vera, that David Galway was your favourite. Why was that? Did you form a relationship as you read these letters and correspondences? Well, it was very difficult. You see from these examples that we are quite at a remove from that way of storytelling and that way of, we might even say, boasting. Um, I know I shouldn't because we're, we're approaching every source um, at its face value. But but after a while, because they're a little repetitive, you find it a little boastful that their achievements are listed all the time. But this particular man I found particularly interesting. He's from Cork, but he's sent to the Hebrides um, after the superior generals, two of them, had been writing to Ireland, please send people to Scotland. You have the vernacular. And you have to imagine this a man from Cork who speaks Munster Irish and he's up there now to speak Scots Gaelic to the people of these islands. Texa is one of them and Isla is, is another island that he goes to and then the Mull of Kintyre where he is now. He just strikes me as a linguist, obviously, but and he sent all the way for most of his time in Ireland. He was based in Cork all the way up to Ulster, where he also was on missions and then further to Scotland at least three times. And of course, these missions were risking their lives because they weren't allowed to be practising and, and there were Jesuit martyrs in Ireland. Absolutely, there were, yeah. There, there were, for instance, um, where the first person who died, he was not not quite a professed Jesuit yet. He was he was only a scholastic, only in inverted commas, Edmund Daniel. His actual name might have been O'Donnell. He was um, he was hung in 1572. Dominic Collins, soon after, he was a brother in 1602. And then Robert Netterville um, died um, in Westmeath in 1644. And John Bath died during that awful Cromwellian massacre in Drogheda in 1649. So they're just some some martyrs that come yeah. to mind. Yeah, absolutely. Over a good lives. period of time, like they were really in danger. Yes. You have another example there, um, Vera, from, from one of the books. Is this from the letters of the calendar? 
Yeah, indeed. This is from, from the annual letters and it's one of the two that was printed. So that there was an idea in the Curia that some of these annual letters should be printed to be more easily shared. You know, otherwise you'd need a scribe for Goa and a scribe for, you know, Japan and to share these rounds. So they, they printed quite a few of them, but only two Irish ones were printed. So it covers all those years between 1641 and 50. So it's really a folkloristic little detail about a church um, north of Balbriggan, I think it is. It's it's still being used, at least that's what Wikipedia tells us, so I haven't made a pilgrimage there yet. But, And I would maybe read out something from those annual letters, 1641 to 50, to give you a flavour of the sort of miraculous things that surface in these letters. So, Please do. So I'll quote now. So far, the heavens continue to bring assistance to the Irish. Forty heretical knights came out from Dublin with stonemasons to destroy the neighbouring chapel of St. Duliach. And they filled in the saint's spring, which had been much frequented, thanks to the people's renowned piety, with stones from the church. Then, when they were returning and were celebrating, an unknown knight, equipped with shining armour, attacked them, and their commander was tracked and killed, and the knight turned the rest to terrified flight. Divine vengeance and death pursued the fleeing workmen and soldiers for the space of 40 days and not any of them was found alive after that space of time. And then he says at the end, I've returned to these events because they are a matter of outstanding solace to our men and to themselves. Wow. The 40 days is very biblical, isn't it? But would the substance of the story be true, I presume? That is the big question with most of these, Pat. So your, your word is as good as mine on these. Um, we, we have some events that are historical events that we know about. Yeah, they've been corroborated. The, yeah. the big things, that sometimes they're retold, like the Siege of Kinsale um, is retold in a very fanciful way. And the Siege of Waterford of 1650 is retold. It's quite falsified, we can say, but it, it's turned around in favour of the Catholic forces, or rather we could say we should say against the Cromwellian forces. Mm-hmm. So you have to take everything in there with a pinch of, of salt, but I would like to think that when it comes to the many deeds that the Jesuits did for their fellow Catholics, you know, one of their main jobs really was, was to help with litigation cases or to, to help with spouses that had fallen apart or that um, family disputes and things like that, they seemed to resolve a lot of these and that, that there was a big gap in society at the time obviously for that sort of thing you know and counseling wasn't heard of the, this was the sort of counseling maybe people also got one-on-one we have so many descriptions of people who were whether they were beset by demons as they put it at the time or whether they, they, they suffered some mental anguish but they go into some detail with many of these and we'd like to, I'd like to think that mm. that these were actually truthful retellings of what happened. Yeah, that's so you can sort of see. And I suppose in everything there's a grain of truth, you know, in terms of like the something must have happened at St. Dulux. It may have been a smaller skirmish or whatever. Mm. But that's what we do. I mean, we, Irish people sing ballads, they, they sing songs and... These tell stories, and I suppose that's how the folk memory passes it on. Absolutely, that's right. At the same time, I should say, because I, I thought exactly that this the voice of the Shanachi comes through here. At the same time, I, I looked at these annual letters from Glückstadt near Hamburg last year. Somebody asked me to write a review of them. So these people, similar to us, they edited their own annual letters and translated them into German. And 
they deploy exactly the same storytelling techniques. So um, I was sorry to see that, to be honest. I really wanted to see some something truly Irish shining forth. But I think the annual letters are this genre and they were supposed to be written in a particularly edifying way. Yeah. And so everybody around the globe, I don't really know, but certainly these two peoples, they use those means of, of telling the story. Was it different then for the calendar, do you think, because you had a greater variety of material? Yeah, but also a less colourful variety of material because we're talking about business letters, really. So that it was a lot of going to and fro um, about recruits, about sending the right men to Ireland. A lot of stress is emphasis is put on the fact that we need people who speak the Irish language because in the towns where the Jesuits were, were had the stable residences, um, you didn't really need Irish so much. But certainly when they went out on missions to County Longford, even County, you know, they went into Connemara, they went to the Iron Islands, they went to County Kerry, they would have needed the vernacular. And very often the Irish mission superior wrote back to Rome and said, look, I need more people with Irish. You have to look out for this. And that wasn't an easy task for the superior general or anybody who helped him sending men because Jesuits, and this just happened decade upon decade, were, were drawn more from what we call the old English merchant classes, mm. who like David Galway, he had obviously full command of the Irish language, but maybe many others didn't who yeah. grew up in towns and cities and then spent a lot of years on the continent getting their training and, you know, not having any recourse to the Irish language. Why would they? So it wasn't wasn't easy. So that's the business correspondence is therefore. The letters now, do they add to the story of the Irish Jesuits? I mean, what do you think they give us? The main thing I think with this new edition is that the linguistic barrier is now removed. The calendar gives, the calendar's indexed as well, that gives you an easy access to particular names if you're looking for them and particular place names as well. But maybe certain questions should be asked that haven't been asked so much before. Like the 18th century hasn't been studied where the Irish Jesuits are concerned. The few studies that, that have come out have all looked at the 17th century and the late 16th century. But also one should ask, how come that the Jesuits constantly punched above their weight, we can say, because they, they, they numbered very few compared yeah. to the older orders. They were at the very most in the 1640s, there were only 63 Jesuits in Ireland. While um, I don't have figures, but I, I know that the Franciscans, I think they were in their 200s, mm. and there were certainly quite a few more of the Augustinians, the Cistercians, and the other older orders. Mm. So, so that... The question should be put, especially when you think of those edicts, and we mentioned one earlier, it was proclaimed in 1604 and repeated the next year, and then all through the 17th century they repeated this edict. They always mentioned the Jesuits first, you know, when they said we expel our priests, they said we expel all Jesuits and massing priests. Isn't that interesting that they singled them out even though they weren't in huge in number? Way that is, they, bad they must have had an influence, yeah. Very bad reputation, <laughs> and they were known for having been particularly trained in, d in disputation. And you know, so they, they had a very good name for themselves, a very bad name for themselves at the same time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, by the authorities that didn't want them there. And I suppose that has continued, you know, down through the centuries. Uh, you worked with a number of people. What was it like for you? I know you're a linguist, you've many languages. Was it good experience for you personally? Well, I was based in Dublin, um, in Leeson Street, where the Irish Jesuit archives are, and that was really useful. Most, you're right, the, most of the, the documents I was looking at were in the, the Roman archives, but I had access to them digitally. And I have to say that those digital images were nearly better than the originals. I did go to Rome 
during my my time working for the Jesuits. And I I looked at particular parts where I thought I couldn't make sense of the digital image, but actually, you know, you can blow them up, you can treat them all sorts of ways, and the originals didn't give anything away that, that I didn't know already. Anyway, I did need help. My Latin was all right at the beginning, got better during the project, but it, it, it was soon clear that I couldn't translate. Well, it was 340 pages of writing of the annual letters in a short space of time. I was calendaring the other things as well. So um, little by little, we brought on a number of translators. And uh, you're right again in saying that I was remote from them anyway. I, most of them I haven't met in person. Um, it's only very recently in Boston I met um, one of my favorite translators. Well, I call him that because he, he did three, not three annual letters, but one annual letter and two major parts of, of two other letters for us. And that was Claude Pavure, uh, a Jesuit and a classicist. In all, there were 15 people working with me and five of them were academic classicists like Claude Pavure. One of them was a professor in religious studies. Two were students of early modern history uh, in UCC, as it happens. One was an academic historian, and then five of them were independent scholars with excellent Latin and a great interest in the the area. Two of whom I might mention, Patty Salmon and Sean McCrum, are even more enthusiastic about Byzantine Greek than about <laughs> Latin. So so they, those two I have met, for instance, and I'm looking forward to the launch when I hope there will be more of them present. Yeah, let's talk about the launch. It's on Friday the 13th. Now, just to say, the Irish Manuscripts Commission, they have published the letters, isn't that right? And that'll be on sale there I think at a good price Yes, uh, 60 euro I think yes, and yes. I think our calendar will be on sale for, for 50 euro Professor Simon Ditchfield's going to speak at it uh-huh. he is, he's going to launch the, the, the volumes they're actually falling now into two volumes so we're very honoured to have Professor Simon mm-hmm. to come and, and speak Yeah, and that'll be interesting and Todd Morrissey Thomas Morrissey who's also a Jesuit historian is going to say a few words as is John McCafferty the head of the Irish Manuscripts Commission so it'll be a good night it's at 6 o'clock so if people want to drop in, they can drop in. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, a big international symposium the next day on on the books by the Irish Historical Society. Isn't that right? That's right, exactly. There's seven really good speakers at it. Colm Lennon is one of them. Uh, Claude Tate, I might as well list them. Claude Tate from Mary Immaculate in Limerick. Jason Harris from UCC. He will talk about the Latinity of the letters. So I'm really looking forward to that, the, the, the type of language they used. And then there's Brian Jackson will speak. Um, Brian McCorta, whom we mentioned earlier. Yes. Martin Förster and Alma O'Donnell, also from UCC. Yes. So St. Patrick's Drumcondra on Saturday the 14th of September. And details on Jesuit.ie. And everybody welcome as well. Absolutely, they are, yeah. yeah. Fiorosha, thanks very much indeed for this and for the great work you've done on editing both these books and a great service to history in general and to the Jesuits in particular. Thank you very much. I, I might use the opportunity and say thank you to the Irish Jesuits for, for having me because I, it was a huge pleasure and it still is.